Uh, great to be with you. My name's Kirk, one of the ministers here at St. John's. And uh, keep that passage open, right? Or if you haven't got it open, I'd encourage you to get it open and have a look at it. Luke chapter 12, because we'll look at it in a bit of detail tonight. It's part of our White Space in July series. And this comes from a design term where, you know, if you're designing a poster or a page on a magazine or a website, that it often makes sense to leave a bunch of white space on the page so that the things that are really important, the things that you want people to focus on, are, are actually not getting drowned out by all these other distractions on the page, right? And so the series started last year. We did a Christmas series where we said, geez, Christmas, full of distraction, full of busyness. We need to deal with that busyness. We need to cope with it. We need to sort of create space in our lives. And it's very popular, successful series that we had here. And people just said, you know what? This is an issue all year. It's not just an issue in December. Actually, people are busy all the time. Um, a couple of weeks I asked, who's had a busy week? Let's do it again. Who's had a busy week? Hands up. Okay, so less than last time, I'm guessing, because it was school holidays. Congratulations. But still a lot. Like, still over half of you had a busy week. So these busyness things and distractions and, and all these messages that we get from the media and so on, uh, they don't create a lot of space for us in life. And it means it's hard to focus on important things like relationships, relationship with God, relationship with each other. And so the series has been about creating some more white space so that we have that opportunity to focus on those important things. So we'll be looking at um, Luke chapter 12 today, and it has some profound things to say about money and the stuff that money buys and the way Christian people should think about money. Now, I'm aware that um, a bunch of you will be in school at the moment, and it'll be tempting for you to check out because you'll be thinking, I don't have much money at the moment, you know, because you maybe you don't have a job or you, you, know, you only get a little bit of pocket money or something like that. Um, but what I would say is uh, that you should tune in, partly just for the future, like that eventually you will, you know, you'll get more money. Like even if you never get a job, Centrelink will give you more money than you're getting at the moment, right? So you will have to deal with money in new ways. Um, but also, I actually think that not having money doesn't mean you don't think about it. And having less money than other people doesn't mean that money is less of an issue for you. Uh, it's, just, it's just a bit different. You've just got less of it to spend, but you can still have some, a lot of the same issues. So please don't tune out um, if you're in that life stage, and particularly because of this stuff here, the Aussie dream. Okay, so a lot of people are saying, this is not Christian people, just any people, Christian or not, that the, the traditional Aussie dream of what it's going to be like in the future as an Australian is dying. It's in the danger zone. It's, it's not looking good. Here are the four points of the Aussie dream that are generally agreed on. I got these guys, these from a guy called, uh, who's a financial researcher in Australia. His name is Satyajit Das, cool name. And he says, here are the four points of the Australian dream. Most people, most young Australians think this is what you're aiming for in life. Number one, a good secure job with good pay. Okay? Preferably a job where you can get a bit of promotion, where you might be able to get a pay rise here and there. Uh, this is what you're looking for. Number two, own your own house, preferably a large house, hopefully with a pool, and also uh, not in danger of being taken back by the bank. Okay? So you've paid it off enough uh, that it's a fairly secure sort of property. Number three, a retirement period of at least 20 years. 
And not a, so, you know, so you retire, and before you go into aged care where your body's sort of you know, shutting down and you, know, you sort of need to look after your body um, in more extreme ways, you have this period where it's like, yeah, you're just living it up and you're like getting the rewards of all your hard work throughout the years, maybe doing overseas trips and buying a yacht and playing golf three times a week and all these sort of things that um, if you ever take notice of retirement ads, uh, you know, then they're all about this, you know, having this sort of amazing fun times uh, towards the end of your life. And the fourth point of the Aussie dream is if you have children, to leave some wealth behind for your kids, to set them up well financially into the future. And, the re- uh, the, and people are saying, so that's been the Aussie dream for quite a long time, and it's looking more and more like a fantasy for anyone under 40. Uh, and if you're Gen Y or younger, um, so Gen Y, like I'm like at the very max, of, I'm 36, and I'm like the very top of Gen Y. So if you're younger than me, then really the Aussie dream, if you manage to achieve this, all four points together, then it'll just be a bit of a fluke. You know, it's probably not going to happen. Here's why. In Australia, the job market is quite vulnerable because we don't have a lot of manufacturing and farming in our country. It's mostly professional services. Most of you who've studied in tertiary sort of education will be for some sort of professional role. And the thing about most professional roles is they're usually well paid, so they cost the companies who employ you a lot, but they're also often roles that you can transfer overseas. And so this happens. Complete industries leave Australia and go overseas. And so the job turnover rate in Australia is getting higher and higher. It's hard to have a secure job. Second point is the rising house rates, the house prizes. Just to give you an example, I think this, this just demonstrates it perfectly. My parents bought their house in Preston for $45,000. They would now sell that for over a million. Okay? So house prices are going up. And yeah, wages have gone up a little bit, but they haven't gone up that much. So it's getting more and more hard. It's just harder and harder to buy a house because they're so expensive. Also, Australians have $1.7 trillion in personal debt. That is a lot of cash that we owe to banks and credit cards and all that sort of thing. So a lot of people, when they get to retirement age, they're not going to have all these savings left over where they can buy a yacht with. They're still going to be paying off the debt that they've accumulated in their life. And so all that means it's very unlikely you're going to have anything left over to give to your kids when you die. So all the evidence is saying for a small percentage of the population, the Australian dream is still possible, and for most of us, it's not. It's not going to happen. Uh, This is younger generations. Some of you are probably living the Australian dream uh, if you're a bit older. Anyway, here's a question for you. How do you feel about that? Let's have a think about that for a moment. Does it worry you? If you are living the Australian dream, it probably doesn't worry you as much personally, but does it worry you for next generations? You know, like, are you worried for the younger generations in Australia? In verse 22 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Jesus' take on life is very different to the Australian dream. Aussie culture tells us that life is basically about accumulating stuff, getting things for yourself. From small things like food and clothes to big things like houses and cars. 
It's all about stuff. If you think about those four points of the Aussie dream, they are all directly connected to money. Not vaguely connected, directly connected to having plenty of money. And Jesus makes this very simple and profound point in the Bible where he says, life is more than that. Life is more than money. Now, I would guess that most of you would agree with that. And I would guess that if we went down the street right now and we surveyed 100 people at random, they would agree that life is more than money. The question is, does that actually play out in our actions? Do we actually live like we believe life is more than that? Anyone seen, seen the kids' TV show, The Flugels? It's a great show. My kids love it. So The Flugels uh, is about these three little aliens from planet Flugel. And they fly to Earth in their spaceship to learn about the human race. And so every episode, they only go for about 10 minutes, is about the, the tiny aliens hiding in this American family's house and learning about things like pets and school and gardens and stuff like that. And uh, they don't talk to the humans, so everything they learn, they learn just by observing what the humans do and the things that happen in the human's house. And at the end of each episode, they send a report back to Planet Flugel about the thing that they've been learning about that particular week and tell, tell the Flugels all about it. So this got me thinking, right? I wonder if the Flugels were living in your house or my house, what would they observe about what we believe about money? Just from looking at what we do, observing our actions, what sort of report would they send back to Planet Flugel? Would they tell Planet Flugel that humans think there is more to life than money? Or would they say, judging from our observations, humans think money is the most important thing in, the, in their existence? Previously to this passage in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told this story, sometimes referred to as the parable of the rich fool. Uh, and it's, it's a, I don't know, I've heard the story a few times, so if you've been around church circles, you might be familiar with it. It's a pretty simple story about greed. There's a guy who's just got heaps of stuff, heaps of food, all this great stuff, and his sheds aren't big enough to fit it all. So he builds bigger sheds. But he keeps getting more stuff and storing out more stuff. So he builds bigger and bigger sheds until he's got these massive sheds. He can't build bigger sheds than that. He fills those sheds and then he goes, that's it. I'm set. You know, I'm sorted. Like, I can just live off this for the rest of my life. And then that night he dies. And so the point of Jesus is, you know, what's the point of all this greed? You know, like, keeping it all for yourself. He could have been sharing that with other people, you know, doing some good. Instead, he dies. And so this is the background to what Jesus is saying as Jesus moves from the topic of greed into the topic of worry. And he talks specifically about worry to do with money, although we will talk generally about worry as well. So this is Leon Morris, head of Ridley College, um, an Aussie guy, Aussie theologian, who once said that greed can never get enough and worry is afraid it may not have enough. Do you see the difference there? They're actually quite connected in some ways. Greed, I want more, 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 more. Worry, I'm worried I'm not going to have enough. I'm worried that I need more. I'm going to need more. So Jesus says in verse 25, Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? It is an outstanding question. It is a rhetorical question. 
You can't add any time to your life by worrying about it. It's not possible. In fact, I think the opposite is true in that my understanding of stress and worry is that it makes you less healthy, not more healthy, and so would therefore sort of limit your life rather than add to it. And yet, we will often lie awake worrying about things that are completely out of our control. Now, as we start talking about worry, I just want to make a distinction between worry and just being concerned about something or caring about something. Uh, so let me give you an example of where being concerned about something can be good, right? So say you're concerned that you're becoming addicted to something. You know, lots of things are addictive. Alcohol, pornography, uh, gambling, sugar, like these things are addictive. And it's not good to be addicted to things. And so you might go, geez, you know, I, feel, I think I'm, you know, I'm drinking too much. Uh, and this is going to be a problem. I don't want, to, I want, don't want to be addicted. And so that's a good concern to have because you have some power in that. You have some power to change, right? You can actually influence that situation. So your concern might bring about a change that would be good. Um, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about worry, in this particular passage anyway, is stuff that we can't control. Worrying about things that you cannot change in any way. So I'll give you an example. Uh, my mother-in-law, so my wife Renee's mum, she uh, was, about 18 months ago, she, she was in a coma. And it was a mystery coma. We didn't know what was wrong with her, um, but we got the call um, from, from Renee's dad one night saying, this is what's happened. The doctors don't know. They're going to do a bunch of tests. They don't know how long this is going to take to play out. Um, but she's in a coma. And so we sort of processed the news, finished the phone call, and we talk it through, it's like, how can we respond to this? Now, neither of us are doctors, uh, so we can't go in and go, hey, you know, here's what you should be doing, doctors, to get out of the... Like, I know nothing about comas. Uh, I guess I could Google it, but every person who works in the medical profession tells me Googling diseases and stuff is a really bad idea. <laughs> Just makes you more paranoid, right? So, okay, so we can't actually influence her, her health. We can't do anything to change that situation. So we said, so what we did is we, we prayed about it. We prayed for the people who worked at the hospital. Uh, we prayed that God would heal Renee's mum. And then we just sort of went about the night, like went about the evening as we were planning to anyway. And that kind of felt a bit wrong. Like it sort of felt like we should be spending the whole night worrying you know, and just being really worried about everything that happened. Um, but that wouldn't have achieved anything. It wouldn't have changed anything. Like, actually, that sort of worry doesn't serve any purpose. It's understandable, right? So worrying is not wrong. You're not sinning when you worry. It's not an evil thing to do. But when you're worrying about things that you can't control, it doesn't achieve much. It's not actually that helpful. And so... Jesus doesn't want worry to sort of consume us and to take, take over us. He wants us to be able to cope with these concerns that we have in healthy ways. Now, I'm going to move on here, but I'm aware that when I tell a story about someone being sick, people will go, but what happened to Renee's mum? <laughs> you know, it's not part of the, uh, the teaching, but uh, she came out of the coma about three weeks later, and uh, she's doing pretty well these days. She had shingles in the brain, so that was what was worked out. Once the shingles were gone, she started doing better took a few days to work that out. Anyway, not part of the teaching, but I know some people would have been like, but, but, tell us what happened. Okay, so Jesus in verse 26 says, 
Since you cannot do this very little thing, which is to add an hour to your life by worrying, why do you worry about the rest? So worrying about someone being in a coma is one thing, but what about less important things than that? We tend to worry about those things too. Ray and I have a couple of friends, very good friends of ours. They're a lot more wealthy than us. They earn a lot more than we do, got way more stuff. And yet, they talk about money in all sorts of worried ways. It stresses them out. Now, you see it on their face sometimes. You know? Now, they would be in the top 5% wealthiest people in the world. In fact, they're probably in the top 1% wealthiest people in the world, and yet they spend a lot of time worrying about money. Isn't there something wrong with that? That doesn't make sense to me that this would be happening, and yet it seems pretty common, a common thing that happens in Melbourne. So Jesus thankfully provides us two ways out of that sort of worry, and they're provided in this passage. The first is to trust that God loves us, and the second is to seek the kingdom of God. So in the last part of this talk, I just want to talk about those two things and how, how that might work out. So trusting that God loves us. In verse 24, Jesus compares us with birds and basically says, well, God gives the birds everything they need. You know, like the world's set up to support birds pretty well and birds do all right. Um, but God cares way more about human beings. Human beings are the peak of God's creation, the best thing he's ever made. He has set the world up to give us what we need. Not necessarily what we want, but he has set the world up to give us what we need. Now you might go, hang on a sec, Jordan was praying before and he mentioned people in other parts of the world who are starving. You know, so he's got, the world's not giving them what they need, you know, as God set it up wrong. Well, here's the thing. There's plenty of food to go around on the earth. Okay? So we're not running out of food. The problem is a whole bunch of people are hogging it and not sharing it and sort of trampling the countries that struggle to grow their own food and, and so on. So actually, if we were all sharing and we got organised about sharing, there'd be plenty of food to go around. But because we're selfish in nature, that doesn't always happen. So God has actually set up... We could, we could have 9 billion people on the planet and still have plenty of food if we just shared it. So God has set the world up that way. That's, this is an example of the way God loves us. He gives us everything we need to live. Um, but also, there's a much more... Um, direct way that God uh, shows us that he loves us and that is Jesus himself Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate sacrificial loving act that God does God does it towards us like that is for us that is God's loving action for us dying for us so we can trust that God loves us because of Jesus' death and resurrection um, so the antidote to worry is to trust in God and to trust that God does love you. It's a real basic of being a Christian. It is a leap of faith, right? You, it is hard to talk yourself into this. You sort of, you've got to put your faith in there that God does love us. But we have evidence of that because of the way the world's set up and because of what Jesus did. So it's not a blind leap of faith. It's an educated step of faith to trust that God loves us. Um, now what this means is that Getting worry out of your life, creating some space and pushing the worry out, um, that is an, a faith exercise. It's not about trying harder. Okay? Now, some of you will do this. Every week you'll come to church and at the end of the talk you'll think, my application this week is to try harder. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try harder at this or try harder at that. And this week you'll be going, 
My application this week is to try really hard to not worry. So you'll be really focused about that and you'll be thinking about it, you'll spend a lot of time thinking about it, stressing about it. What are you doing there? You're worrying about not worrying. You know, like, it's not going to be helpful. This is a faith exercise. It's not about your power. It's about trusting in God. It's about actually giving it to God instead of taking it all on your own shoulders. Um, that's why prayer can be really helpful in trusting God. You know, I mentioned that story before about Renee's mum in the coma. The one thing that we could do that potentially could have changed that situation, uh, potentially did change that situation, was to pray. So we personally couldn't have done anything, but we at least could ask God to intervene. As Christians, we believe that God listens to prayer and that some God, sometimes God miraculously changes circumstances in response to those prayers. Not every time, not always in the way we ask, but sometimes, and that's a really important part of being a Christian, is trusting God in that way and asking him to take action where we can't. And again, that's taking the pressure off us, it's taking the worry off us and, and talking about it with God and, and leaving it with God. It's a really good way to work through worry. Um, and it's particularly personal prayer, just when you're praying by yourself, it's a really good habit to get into. Even if you're not asking God for any particular change, but you've just got some issues that you want to talk through, just like, like you can be completely honest with God, and so just do that, and prayer is a great way to sort of deal with your worry. So that's the first step, to trust that God loves us. The second step is to seek the kingdom of God. Jesus says in verse 29, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world, the pagan world is the people who aren't Christians, the people who follow other beliefs. The pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So seeking the kingdom means your needs will just sort of fall in place. So basically, Jesus would say, you just need to ditch the Aussie dream. Don't worry about it. Put it out of your mind. It's not that the Aussie dream is evil, necessarily. I think it can be, if you, depending on what place it has in your heart. But it's not like owning a house is not an evil thing, or like having a secure job is not an evil thing. But if those are the things that define you as a person, then there are problems. So Jesus just says, well, put those things aside. It reminds me of, I don't know if any of you studied Fight Club in VCE, um, but there's this, it's all about consumerism and it's a lot about the topics that we're talking about today. And there's this great line in it that says, the things you own end up owning you. And it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's kind of paraphrasing Jesus here. The things you own end up owning you. And if you get obsessed with just getting stuff for yourself, it'll end up dominating your life. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. He's got a better plan for you. And the kingdom is about that sort of thing. So the kingdom of God's not a place, okay, a physical place. It, it's a state of being. You know, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is amongst us. And so when he tells stories about the kingdom, he's talking about where God and his ways are the way things are. Where God and his ways are the way things are. That's the kingdom. Where God's rule is obvious, that's the kingdom. So simple things like when people, people are speaking to the truth to each other in a gracious, kind way... That's an example of the kingdom. Uh, when people are um, in a situation where no one person is better than anyone else, then that is an example of the kingdom. Uh, when people are just in loving relationships with each other, or they're worshipping God, that is an example of the kingdom of God. So that can happen anywhere, right? It can happen here, it can happen in the car park, it can happen during the week at school or at work or at home or whatever. The kingdom of God can be present anywhere where 
God's way is the way things are. And that's what Jesus wants for us. That's to be the focus of our lives, is to have kingdom things as the number one priority. So basically, you have the kingdom as your number one goal, and then underneath that are your financial goals, and they fit in line with these kingdom goals. That's the challenge, and make sure you don't have it the other way around. So once we've ditched consumerism, we've ditched the Aussie dream, that allows the kingdom of God to take over. Jesus says in verse 33, um, uh, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses or wallets for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And whenever I hear the word treasure, my mind jumps to pirates for some reason. Um, uh, and pirates are like, they, they, they keep becoming popular like they lose popularity and then they come back like there's another Pirates of the Caribbean movie out there's a whole bunch of video games about to come out that are all about pirates even in the Wiggles Captain Feathersword is still there he's still popular with kids even though he's quite an old bloke now uh, you know pirates are popular and you think about pirates not like real life pirates like the ones with machine guns like this scary but like fictional pirates with eye patches and stuff um, what do pirates love they love treasure their whole life is about finding gold and doubloons and pearls and this sort of stuff. It's what makes them happy. You know, and so the pirate's life is all about getting physical treasure uh, and it drives everything that they do. That's why they get up in the morning. So a Christian's life, a Christian's treasure is not these physical treasures, but it's about, our treasure is about bringing the kingdom of God to wherever we are and whoever we're with and bringing those good things of the kingdom into those situations. Um, that's what's supposed to get us up in the morning and we can't do that if money's crowding out all the space in our lives and all the worry that we have about money is pushing that stuff out and crowding us out. We need space to be able to do that. Now, this can be a challenge. It'll be harder for some people than others. I want to give you an example and I'm probably referencing a couple of people in this room uh, but it is a couple of people because this has happened multiple times to friends of mine. So they become a Christian... Um, and then they start to go, you know, I'm thinking a bit differently about money and I'm you know, thinking a bit, bit differently about work and so on, challenged by passages like we've got today. And their, their families aren't that happy with it. And their families start putting pressure on them to stick to the Aussie dream and to prioritise financial success and all that sort of stuff. Um, to the point where, you know, I've had multiple friends where their parents would tell them that like, if you work for a not-for-profit organisation, I'll be disappointed in you. You know, you need to work in jobs where you're going to get promotions and all that sort of stuff. So this sort of thing can happen, and it's not necessarily like mean pressure. But it can just be there, like it can just exist. You know, it's not necessarily that, that like they're hating you or anything, but it can just be there. I was listening to an interview with a guy called Michael Heng. Um, he's a um, Australian comedian. He was a presenter on Good Game for a bit, and um, he was talking about his upbringing. And Christian upbringing, his family were Christian, they would have said, in our house, we follow Jesus. The God of our house is the God of the Bible, we follow Jesus. But on reflection, I don't think he's Christian now, um, but on reflection he said, do you know what? The real God of our house was financial success. That when you looked at the way the family operated and the decisions they made, that financial success was actually the dominant story in their family 
And he traced that back a little bit because uh, his family's Chinese. They'd been in Australia for several generations, but they'd come to Australia originally to have financial success. Australia was seen as this place. And actually, if you're not Aboriginal and you didn't, your family didn't come out in the first fl fleet as a, as, like a, um, as a prisoner, you know, as a convict, then your family probably migrated to Australia to gain financial success. And so what you've got to push against when you're trying to live Jesus' way is potentially generations of people pursuing the Aussie dream in one way or another and prioritising financial success. If you think about that, that can be a powerful force to push against generations of family practices and that sort of thing. Um, now, depends on your situation, but have a think about that. How does your family operate? You know, have a think about the decisions that are made in your house. If the flugels were observing your family, what would they say you believed about money? What would they say was the most important thing in your family? It's a really interesting question. You, and you can think about that as a parent, as kids, as housemates, etc. It's a really valuable thing to do. I'm about to finish. But just before I do that, have you noticed this is a talk at church about money where I haven't mentioned giving money to church? And please don't move your brain in that direction tonight. Giving money to church can be a good thing to do. Let's put that aside. That, that, that's a good thing. But our application should not be, I'll just drop another coin or another note in the plate later on when we, when we do that, you know, the offering and the giving and stuff. That's, not, that's very simplistic. That's not what Jesus is on about here. What we need to do is to realise the pressure our society gives us about money, the way our society wants us to think, and we need to reject it. And we need to live a different way where there is more to life than money, where other things are more important, where relationships are more important. Right from the beginning to the end of the Bible, relationships are more important than stuff, the whole way through. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We need to make space in our lives, push that money pressure out, push those distractions out so that we can actually focus on God's kingdom and making that the priority. Probably you have an unhealthy relationship with money because you live in Australia. <laughs> I do. You probably do too. Um, and that's the reality. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That is the reality. And we just need to be constantly aware of it and constantly turning to God and asking for his help and trusting in him instead of trusting in the market or our wages or whatever. Um, it's probably a blind spot for us. Maybe you've never thought about this. Maybe I'm making you feel uncomfortable tonight. It's all good. We've got to remember that God is gracious, that actually we don't earn God's love. You know, it's not like spreadsheets or work or that sort of thing. We've got to earn your pay or whatever. God loves us even though we screw things up all the time. <laughs> so he doesn't keep adding up all our good and bad points. He just loves us and he just wants us to have that relationship with him and not be distracted by those other things. So I just want to pray for us now that we'll all be able to live in that zone and have a really healthy relationship with Jesus and with, and with money. So let's pray. Father God, we're sorry for the times that we've worshipped money or that we've worried about it in unhelpful ways. Please forgive us for that. Thank you that you give us your forgiveness for free. We don't have to have any money in order to accept it. It's just given because of Jesus. 
So we thank you for that. We thank you for your forgiveness and ask that you please show us the way of your kingdom. Amen.